So we're continuing with unconditional election. And at this point, we're going to talk about the doctrine of reprobation, which is a very difficult doctrine, um, but it's necessary that we talk about it. Um, in fact, um, Calvin called it the decretum horribili, or the horrible doctrine. He said that um, it was unavoidable, though, because it was clearly... Uh, taught in scripture, so it was something that we had to deal with. So reprobation comes from the Latin. It basically means uh, rejected. Um, and it's the teaching that God rejects or repudiates some persons to eternal condemnation in a way that is parallel to, but opposite of his ordaining others to salvation. Now, we're going to examine whether it's exactly parallel or whether it differs slightly. And, and that, that's important to see the difference between the doctrine of unconditional election and how it ties in with the doctrine of reprobation. So, <clears throat> if we're to get a little bit technical, in the doctrine of reprobation, there are two elements. There's uh, preteration, which is the determination that um, to pass some men by, which we're going to look at, you know, why is that done? And do we contribute to that? And then there's the element of Condemnation, also known by some as pre-condemnation, um, which is just basically the determination to punish those passed by. So determination to punish those passed by, and here's the important part of this element, for their sins. So they're not being punished for being passed by. They're passed by and they're punished for their sins. So there's a reason for the punishment here. So we have to think about it this way. If God has chosen some for salvation, but not everyone, right, that we see in the, this, we see this in, the, in the doctrine of unconditional election, some are chosen, but not everyone is chosen, then it follows that some are then not elect. They're not gathered in in the unconditional election. And since only the elect are saved... The non-elect are ultimately lost. So God's election of some, by its very nature, from what we've studied, implies the rejection of others. Now, Scripture teaches this doctrine explicitly. We're going to be looking at that, of course. Um, interesting thing is that we see, especially if you've been coming to the Sunday night uh, services and Pastor Steve has been teaching 
through Revelation, if you've been coming to those, you see in Revelation, and if you've read the book of Revelation, you already know this, that in chapters 3 and 17, there's a mention of the book of life. Well, the Bible also speaks of a book of condemnation. We're going to look at that uh, in a a little bit and see exactly, you know, wow, I haven't heard of that or I I, I missed that. Well, it's, you know, it's a translation deal, and we're going to look at that. So this idea of the doctrine of reprobation, Paul brings this doctrine into this passage that we've been looking at from Romans 9, 6 through 18. So in your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading verses 6 through 18. Please follow along. And in this passage that Paul writes, he quotes from two passages in the Old Testament, from the Old Testament, from the Jewish scriptures that speak to the doctrine of reprobation, and they're important to what Paul is talking about. Now remember that in Romans chapter 9, Paul is writing about, you know, he's struggling with this idea, and he's expressing why there is this obvious Jewish unbelief, this obvious Jewish rejection of the Messiah in light of Gentile salvation through Christ. Why are the people of the covenant rejecting their Messiah, and now the, the covenant is opened up to those not of the Jewish people? So there's, there's this, this, this bit of this tension here that Paul's writing about. So this is the basis uh, behind what we're going to read here, Romans 9, 6 through 18. And Paul writes... But, is not, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on, whom, on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So we find the doctrine of reprobation in two places in this passage. In verse 13, Paul quotes from uh, Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Every time I read Malachi, I had a friend of mine that uh, pronounced it Malachi. 
And I was like, oh, the, you mean the, the, the Italian prophet, Malachi. <laughs> so I stumble on that every time because I want to say Malachi. Anyway, so Paul quotes from Malachi uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3, which is speaking of the Lord's love for Israel when he says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And then the second instance um, where he's talking of reprobation is in verse 17. And there Paul is quoting from Exodus 9, verse 16, where the Lord explains that he has a purpose for Pharaoh, the great enemy of Israel. And this is what Exodus says. But for this purpose, God speaking, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then verse 18, the end of the passage we read from Romans, Paul summarizes the teaching in those texts by concluding, so then he, speaking of God, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So again, just like the doctrine of election, we must begin with the fact of reprobation, regardless of how we feel about it, because of the many texts that teach reprobation, that speak of reprobation. This is something that, yeah, we may have to struggle with it, but struggle we must. We just can't ignore it and pretend it's not there and still be faithful to the Word of God. We have to try and understand it. For example... Some of the other passages that speak of it. Proverbs 16.4, where it says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. In John chapter 12, verses 39 to 40, speaking of the unbelief of the people regarding Jesus John writes, therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. He's speaking of God doing this. This is God's action. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. John, again, chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus speaking to the disciples at the Last Supper. He says, I'm not speaking all of, of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. A man that was destined to be a traitor from before time is who Christ is talking about here. Again, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 12 When Jesus is praying to the Father in his high priestly prayer, he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, or the son of perdition, depending on translation, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, talking about the traitor. 1 Peter Chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, writing to the church about the proper response to the persecution they were experiencing, Peter says this, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They were destined for disobedience. Now, I'm not going to just read scripture to you today, but I think it's important when we're addressing uh, a very important doctrine that's also very difficult that we see how it's grounded in God's word. That we see that it's not just something like some people suppose in their ignorance, their lack of information, that it's something that John Calvin cooked up on his own. As we saw at the beginning, even Calvin wasn't you know, excited about this doctrine. He called, it, he called it the horrible doctrine. But deal with it we must, he says. So shall we. Now, now the book of Jude... This is the place where it talks about this book of condemnation. And in verse 4 of Jude, as you know, there's no chapter breakdown. It's a short book written by one of the Lord's half-brothers. This is what Jude says. And he's warning about the ungodly who have infiltrated the church. Now notice the warnings, the warnings that are given in the New Testament epistles are hugely concerned about problems within the church. Right? Jude's not warning about the ungodly outside of the church. And why is that? Because everyone outside the church is the ungodly. The church knows that. So if you want to be apart from the ungodly, if you want to be with God's elect, the church is the place for it. But we are warned that there are problems. There are issues that will arise in the church. And this is what Jude says. Verse 4 again. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to break that down a little bit. This word here, designated... Really, in the Greek, it means it's, it has been written beforehand. So it's written down ahead of time. It's a book of condemnation. So when we read through this in our English, you know, we're, we're not, that's not going to jump out uh, at us. But I think it's, it's interesting that we have a book of life and we have a book of condemnation, according to Jude. So these are ungodly people inside the organization of the godly people, the church, the body of Christ, who are perverting the grace of God, who are taking the grace of God and turning it into something it is not. And I think we can recognize this as occurring even today, probably just as much as when Jude's warning about it. We may have gone, we've gone through, of course, periods of time in, in church history where, the, where the, this issue, this problem has ebbed and flowed. You know, where it's been a severe problem, where it's not been such a, a major problem, but it has always been a problem. Perverting the grace of God, as Jude says, into sensuality. Now, this is just what it sounds like. It's, it's into immorality related to our physical relations with another person. There are many inside the church, inside the visible church today, who are doing this very same thing when they're saying that prohibited relationships within the sexes are fine and that 
no matter what God's word says, that was for then and not for now. So I think this is a very good example of how these warnings apply to us today. And that we must read them as though the, the, um, the New Testament writers are speaking to us directly. Because God has determined that this is something we need to know. And so it's been canonized. Turning, perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So if you hook all this together, this perversion of God's grace surrounding this topic of the relationships between a man and a woman within marriage being perverted into something else actually is a denial of Christ as our Lord and Master. And why is that? Because Christ very explicitly teaches against this. He teaches against this in his preaching, in the Gospels, and as God the Son, it's been taught in the Old Testament, it's been inspired by our triune God to the prophets in the Old Testament to teach this. So it goes across the ages. In each of these verses that we've talked about, from Jude and the ones before, and and there's many others, of, of course, they teach that God passes by some people, destining them to destruction rather than salvation. Now, this is not an, really an enjoyable lecture for me to give, as I'm sure it's not enjoyable for you to think about it, because all of us know people that at this point in time seem to be in the process of being passed by. People that we care for, people that we love very much. But deal with this, we must. And whether it serves to, uh, to guide us on, in how to present the gospel to our loved ones in a manner that they, that they may hear it, ultimately that decision is God's, whether they hear it or not, Because, like John repeated from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, he hardens some hearts, he he closes some ears, he closes some eyes, so people will not understand. That is something that we really are never going to know, in this lifetime at least, the reason why. But this Destining to destruction rather than salvation is very clear in Scripture. But um, John Montgomery Boyce, who I've relied on heavily uh, to prepare this series, his his books on the doctrine of grace are are great. I highly recommend them. Um, He he delves into writings by earlier uh, theologians that are a little bit more difficult and dense and he makes them very easy to understand. So Boyce is someone that I, I would recommend to you. But he cautions when we talk about this, we need to make several important distinctions between election on one hand and reprobation on the other. Okay, distinction. So they're not, we're going to see that, that as Boyce says, and it, and it appears to me that they don't run completely parallel to one another. There's a bit of a difference. So Boyce says there's a question that we need to ask. Does God determine the destinies of individuals in exactly the same way? Well, that's what I just said. So that these individuals, regardless of what they may or may not do, he assigns one to heaven 
and others to hell. Difficult proposition. But we know this is true in regards to those elected to salvation because scripture tells us that election has no basis in any good or foreseen good that those who have been elected to salvation may do. We do nothing to contribute to our election to salvation. That's very clear. We've studied that. And there's no question uh, as far as that it's something that Scripture teaches. Paul's chief point in Romans chapter 9 is that salvation is due entirely to God's mercy and not to any good that might be imagined to reside in us. We shouldn't think that we're better than others because we've been elected to salvation. We've not contributed to it. We are in the same condition as all of the other sinners in the world from the fall in the garden until the end of time, except for the fact that we have been chosen. So, Boyce says, the question is whether this can be said of the reprobate too. Has God consigned them to hell apart from anything they have done? That is, apart from anything they've done to deserve hell. And this is where the important distinction is to be made. And this one has been made by the majority of Reformed thinkers and has been embodied in many of the church's creeds. And we're going to look at the creeds. These are very important. And we're going to start off with the Westminster Confession of Faith because it serves as a primary example, I would say. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 3, section 5, this is what it says. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them. Okay, unconditional election. In section 7 of um, the WCF's chapter 3, it says, The rest of mankind was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creature to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. So it's the doctrine of reprobation is what's being spoken of in this section. So why am I talking about the Westminster Confession of Faith rather than our very own London Baptist Confession of Faith as an example. Well, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, as you probably know, parallels the Westminster Confession of Faith in in many areas. But section 7 that I just read uh, is about reprobation is deleted from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Why is that? Well, I went to uh, Dr. Sam Waldron's book to determine why that is. And his book uh, on our confession is called A Modern Exposition of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And it's a very good commentary and explanation on our confession. And Dr. Waldron states that this deletion, in his opinion, and I'm not one to argue with Dr. Waldron, so I agree with him, 
that this deletion weakens the London Baptist Confession of Faith's testimony to the doctrine of reprobation. So in our confession, in chapter 3, paragraph 3, it says, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. So it is mentioned. Did you catch that reprobation is mentioned in there? Very, very quick mention of it, though. And Dr. Waldron points out that the Bible says more about reprobation than uh, the London Baptist Confession does. And he says um, in his book, the Westminster Confession must be commended for its faithfulness to Scripture at this point. However, Dr. Waldron also sees a weakness in the Westminster Confession of Faith in regards to reprobation. He says it parallels salvation and reprobation um, in a way that, you know, maybe it should not. And it and this parallelism that it seems to express leaves the impression, false impression, that God is sadistic. And God's relation to reprobation, according to Dr. Waldron, is not the same as his relation to the decree of salvation. Uh, and he refers to Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, which says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Well, the authors of our London Baptist Confession of Faith left no record as to why they chose to delete section 7 from that they, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, where it seemed like they, they were following the Westminster very closely until they got to section 7 on, on reprobation. And Dr. Waldron has a theory as to why they did that. Um, and, and basically, the, the, this is what I just presented to you, that, that there is a, uh, as it is written, there's a parallelism that is not does not give uh, uh, the exact accurate point of the doctrine of reprobation that our forefathers in the faith thought was appropriate. And it's, it's you know, it, we probably wish they would have written something a little bit more, uh, but they didn't. Um, so getting back to uh, Boyce's example of uh, the Westminster Confession, um, section 5 and 7, he says that these statements teach that in some ways election and reprobation are the same, but not in all ways. See, Boyce is detecting a difference. I'm not saying Waldron does not detect a difference, but Waldron is saying that the difference is not perhaps not clear enough, and perhaps that's why it wasn't you know, carried over from the Westminster into the London. Boyce says that both of these ideas, the doctrine of, of uh, unconditional election and the doctrine of reprobation, both flow from the eternal counsel or will of God rather than the will of men. Okay? 
that should be that should be clear to us with the passages we've looked at. And both has have as their ultimate purpose the revelation of God's glory. Both of these doctrines are centered on God, as is everything we're going to be looking at. And when we read and study our Bibles, we should be realizing that God is the central character in the story that we're reading about. But two important differences, again, according to Boyce. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of the reprobate as being passed by. So some argue that in its ultimate effect, there's no difference between being passed by and being actively ordained to condemnation. And I know of... um, I know theologians that hold this position. One of my professors in seminary held this position. It's like, ultimately, it's the same thing. It really doesn't matter. And all we're doing is we're parsing something out. We're getting into semantics here. But how does it actively affect human beings? Um, I don't know if I uh, agree with that. I think think to a certain point, it it is important to look at the differences from an apologetic standpoint. But in fact, this was my apologetics professor that said it. So anyway, while while it's in fact true that ultimately there's no difference between being passed by and actively ordained to, to condemnation, there's nevertheless a major difference in the cause. And I think this is what's important. This is what Boyce is bringing out that those elected to salvation come to faith through the new birth and regeneration, which is an act of God, right? That's how, we, that's, how we're, that's how we are brought into the body of Christ. That's how unconditional election works out in our world. But those who are lost are not caused by God to disbelieve. They do that all by themselves, God withholds a special grace of regeneration from them. They are left in the state of sin, which is universal to all of us. So the Westminster Confession speaks of God ordaining the lost to dishonor and wrath for their sin. So then reprobation is the opposite of an arbitrary action, an action that's done without any reason or is just done willy-nilly, so to speak. The unregenerate are not sent to hell because God consigns them to it arbitrarily. It's not that he's picking, them, picking out people before the creation of the world and assigning them arbitrarily to hell, you know, counting so many down, like the Roman legion we talked about last week being decimated. Every tenth man is executed. It's not that. God consigns them to hell for a reason. It's judgment. It's judgment for their sins. So this is contrary to the principle we find in unconditional election, isn't it? Unconditional election, we don't do anything to earn that. But in reprobation, God leaves us to be held accountable for what we do, for our sins. Abraham Kuyper, very important person in late 19th, early 20th century reformed thinking, he wrote, 
that while God, according to the secret of his counsel, elects those who are to be saved, this same omnipotent God has made us morally responsible. Morally responsible. Get that? See, a lot of people outside of reformed, the reformed faith that don't know that much about reformed faith think that we don't take into account as reformed Christians the moral responsibility, that we are just predetermined to do everything. But Kuiper talks about the importance of this. He continues, so that we are lost, not because we could not be saved, but because we would not be saved. On our own, we would not be saved. That's what Kuiper's saying. And he's basing this theology on the historic creeds and confessions of the church, specifically in his case, on the canons of the, the Synod of Dort. Remember way back when we started, we looked at the Synod of Dort and how out of that we get the doctrines of grace as an answer to the five doctrines that the Arminians had presented. So the canons of the Synod of Dort, which Kuiper is basing this on, state, not all, but some only are elected, while others are passed by in the eternal decrees. And these are punished, not only on account of their unbelief, but also for all their other sins. Now don't forget, unbelief is a sin, deserving of punishment. So then, what we could say about this, that election is active, while reprobation is passive, in a, in a sense. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, this specifically is what I mean. In election, God actively intervenes to rescue those who deserve destruction, which is all of us. Whereas in reprobation, God passively allows some to receive the just punishment they deserve for their sins. So reprobation is a useful doctrine. If the doctrine of reprobation is as difficult as it seems, then why should we speak of it at all? Why not pass it by? Pardon the pun. One reason, as we have seen, is that the Bible speaks of it. Right? If the Bible speaks of something, we need, we need to discuss it. We need to think about it. We need to ponder it. This must be our primary answer to the person who says, and I know, undoubtedly, most, if not all of you, have heard something like this. I could never love a God like that. Sound familiar? Okay, to that person, fair enough. Nevertheless, that is the God with whom you must deal, because that is the God revealed by himself in his divine revelation, in his special revelation, in the Bible. Well, <clears throat> quite honestly, that is a less than satisfying answer to give to someone. Well, in some regards it is. There's times, I think, when that would, well, that would feel pretty good to say that. But, um, but really, if we, if, if we love those, who are, those, those around us who appear to be lost at this point in time, if we love them, we should, we should want to have a more satisfying answer, right? We should, have, we should want to be able to express God's thinking that he's revealed to us 
in a better way than just saying, fine, you know, have at it. So there are other meaningful things that we can say about reprobation. Reprobation assures us that God's promise, his promise has not failed. This is the very thing that Paul is concerned about in Romans 9, assuring his readers that God's word has not failed in his promise to Israel. I'll read it again. Romans 9, verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. We know based on God's own words that he has determined all things before, from before the beginning of creation. And God's word does not fail in regards to either the elect or the reprobate. This means that if you heard God's promises and believed his word, you can be sure that he will be faithful to you. So I think this is, this is important. We, we should not, we cannot let this idea of reprobation affect the assurance of salvation. It should not shake the foundation of God's elect to, into wondering, am I elect? Or am I reprobate? And we're going to talk more about that. We're going, to, we're going to see why. Because if others are lost, it is because God has determined that they should be. And their loss does not mean that you will follow them. Nor does it mean that God has somehow failed in his plans for the evangelization of the world. So here's this question that you might ask. Am I one of the elect? This is how you know. The answer is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do that, you are among the elect. And this is the only way, the only way that anyone can ever discover whose God's elect are. If you need further evidence of your election, examine the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your Christian experience. How are you living your life? Are you living in constant sin, repeating the same sins? Or has there been a change? Do you now have the power given by God to turn away from those sins? An ability that you did not have at one point in your life. It's not to say if you're, if you're still tempted by those thin, sins that you're not God's elect. We will face temptation until the day of our death or until the Lord returns. However, we now, and we talked about this yesterday at a great men's um, uh, breakfast, talking about uh, uh, holiness, um, and those of you men that weren't there uh, if you can attend, I highly recommend a great discussion, great book that we're reading. We talked about this yesterday, you know, the overcoming the power of sin and how, how God enables us to do that. 
So our experience does play into this idea of how we can know whether we are amongst the elect, but it's not primary. You know, our, our faith is not solely experiential, where it's just based on feelings and what we experience. No, it's based on God's word, his revelation to us. And these things are contained within God's word. And the only infallible proof is found in Christ himself and in his saving work. Now we all know those who professed Christ at one point and have turned away from them. So then the question can rightly be asked, well, how about them? You know, they claimed Christ was their Lord and Master. They claimed to be transformed, perhaps, in their experiences, in the way they lived their life. But yet now they deny Christ. Well, we must take into account the fact that as fallen human beings, we are subject to our emotions. We're subject to pressures um, that can that can trick us, if you will. Many times those who at one point claimed to be saved by Christ, that claimed to be Christians, are caught up in an emotionalism of a moment. You know, you fill a professional sports stadium with people and you get excellent public speakers down on the stage that are speaking about, you know, making a decision for Christ and the music's playing, and the music's drumming up the emotions, and the emotion is sweeping through the stadium, there's going to be people who get caught up by that. And it is not necessarily a work of God that's, a, that's happening. It's a human work, right? It's a decision that they are making. The, 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 God is not transforming them. They are saying, okay, you know what? That's what I want to do. And they go forward with the crowd, now, this is just one example. It happens at, at lesser degrees in some churches that, that, that use the uh, unbiblical practice of an altar call, uh, of causing people to come forward. And I've been in churches, as I'm sure many of you have, where um, the, the, the preacher up at the pulpit who is making the altar call repeats and repeats and repeats the altar call to get people to come forward. And finally, I'm sure some poor souls just say, Oh, I'm gonna. I, I want to. I want to go have lunch. I'm gonna go up there. You know, maybe maybe that'll make them happy. Okay, so you see how this is this is human nature at work here. We're we're fallen sinners, and we can do things for a period of time through our own power, but we cannot continue in that lifestyle in the Christian lifestyle by our own power. That is where we know the Holy Spirit has transformed us. When you get up on Sunday mornings and you're tired, you've had a late night, maybe the kids haven't done sleep well, you've got aches and pains and you're tossing and turning all night, Sunday morning, and you just need to go to church. Well, Initially, in your Christian experience, that could just be because you want to feed on the emotionalism. But we get to a point, brothers and sisters, where that is the Holy Spirit compelling us that we must be among our brothers and sisters. We must be among the brethren. We must hear God's word 
preached, even though we may not feel like it when our eyes open in bed. And the same for Sunday evening, and the same for Wednesday night. And I know that many of you, especially driving long distances and with small children, those services just are not possible for you. And that's very understandable. But when we are in a continued pattern of worshiping and being in God's Word, where we want to read God's Word, and we'll go through seasons where, you know, I'm just not getting as much out of it as I do at times. Sometimes we were in dry seasons. Sometimes we're in a spiritual drought, right? And there's times when, you know, I make a practice of reading the Bible every day, as I'm sure very, very many of you do. And there's times when, you know, I just think, what if I just skip it today? I can do that as, as a human being. I can, I can skip the good things for me uh, very easily. But there's something about God's word that draws us to it, right? And if you're experiencing that, then you have the assurance of salvation. That's, that's what I'm saying. I don't want this doctrine of reprobation to unnecessarily disturb those of you who are of God's elect. If Christ is not your Lord and Master, then I think you should think about that. You should think about this doctrine of of reprobation and the doctrine of unconditional election. Think long and hard about it. And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, if you are hearing God's word preached from this pulpit, if you're hearing the Bible teaching from this lectern, then you must consider that God is doing something in your life. Whether you're here, whether you're watching online, God is speaking to you through the men that this body of believers has chosen to present God's word. It's not just coincidental. That's all we have time for this morning. Next week, we're going to be talking about reprobation some more. And we're talking right now about the reasons, the good reasons for reprobation. You know, what, that it's a useful doctrine. And next week, we're going to talk about how it helps us deal with apostasy, which is something that the New Testament writers were very, very much concerned of and which we must be very, very much concerned of in this day and age. So join me in prayer, and we'll have a quick break before the 11 a.m. service. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters and people that have been here, Father, um, for this. Bless them. May, May this teaching... Um, edify them and help them to understand this difficult doctrine, Father. And bless the, uh, the 11 a.m. service. Bless Pastor Steve as he brings the word to us, Lord. Um, may our hearts and, and ears be opened to what uh, Pastor Steve will present to us this morning. Um, and just bless the rest of this day, Father, that as we worship you and we focus on you, uh, that we may glorify you and be obedient servants. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.